1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkoff. I am your host. I am coming to you from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, which is as mysterious and amazing as it seems. Uh, I am joined here, by the way, in the background by Ian Enright, our uh, engineer and producer who... um, uh, is part man and part some kind of beast, which we don't really know. We can hardly identify, but he's never been seen <laughs> outside of the third sub-basement, so um, uh, 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 you know, if you spot him, uh, uh, send photos, post them on Instagram, on our Instagram account. Um, and in London, England, we have Corey Shockey of Double S, and in Washington we have Mika Oyang of The Third Way, and in Uh, sunny Los Angeles or outside of sunny Los Angeles, we have Emily Brandwin, who is the host of our upcoming brand new series, Washington for Beautiful People, the latest addition to the Deep State Radio roster. Um, Let me start, um, you know, with the kind of check that foreign policy professionals make all the time. Um, Corey, are we on the verge of a war with Russia?
2: So Russia has been at war against Ukraine for the last several years, not only seizing Crimea, but fostering violent unrest in the Donbass and trying to punish Ukraine for wanting to be closer to the European Union and to NATO and trying to ensure that Ukraine remains a failed state in order that its prosperity not become a, um, a comparison for for the path Putin has put Russia on. But the crisis in the Sea of Azov that started yesterday, you know, f- we're four years at war and the Russians are just keep chipping away. Um, it, it's what the strategic survey that the International Institute for Strategic Studies just published calls tolerance warfare, right? They, it's It's what they used to call during the Eisenhower administration salami tactics. You take a thin slice and see if anybody reacts. It's a small enough move that you could back away from it if you had to, or the humiliation of backing down wouldn't be too much. But what Russia did was it looks like they're trying to enforce territorial claims at sea extending from Crimea um, against Ukraine. And yesterday they killed six uh, six Ukrainian seamen and took a couple of ships of Ukrainian origin and then accused the Ukrainians of making the whole thing up. Um, staging it as a way to precipitate martial law in Ukraine. This So Russia is clearly to blame for this. But the second thing to say is that the dysfunctional nature of the Poroshenko government is making it hard for folks to come to their defense. Because, in fact, Poroshenko does want parliament to implement martial law. And the corruption of the Poroshenko government has stalled momentum um, and support from Western nations. To his great credit, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, today made a statement that Ukraine has the full support of NATO allies for their territorial integrity and sovereignty. But at the UN Security Council this afternoon, the Russians were... Uh, anything but repentant. And this has the real potential to escalate quickly.
1: Um, Yeah, Mika, the United States would seem to be an important player in this kind of international incident. And, uh, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that the Obama administration was not as tough on the Russians, perhaps, as they could have or should have been on several occasions. Um, uh, But to the extent to which that was the case, the Trump administration has clearly compounded that by giving the Russians a free pass on all sorts of things. Uh, And I'm wondering how you think this set of incidents plays out in Washington.
3: So I think, unfortunately both left and right have incentives to turn a blind eye to what's happening in Ukraine when actually we should be paying very close attention to what's happening there because the Russians have been using it as their proving ground and their testing ground for all kinds of tactics. they are boundary testing, not just on conventional warfare, but also in the cyberspace messing with their utilities causing uh, putting out disinformation the things that they are trying there they will try in other places um, so we should be watching it very carefully as a case study but I think David to your point about the Obama administration you know America's fear of an escalatory crisis uh, with a nuclear armed power is so great that in many ways we are self-deterred for from doing the kinds of things that we might otherwise in the face of this kind of incursion in sovereignty. I mean, we are a very long way from the first Bush administration that said that the Iraqi annexation of Kuwait will not stand and marshal the coalition to enforce that territorial sovereignty. Russia, and we're a long way also from the moment where Senator McCain declared we are all Georgians after the Russian incursion into South Ossetia, unfortunately, what we have seen with the annexation of Crimea and the continuing conflict in eastern Ukraine has been met largely with a collective shrug in U.S. foreign policy circles. I think there are some experts who are obviously very concerned about this, but you do not see the people with decision-making authority doing the things that are necessary to say we actually care about countries maintaining their sovereignty and we will not change borders by force.
1: Well, you know, quite quite beyond that, yesterday, Emily, one of the things that struck me was as the Russians were seizing these ships and uh, provoking this confrontation um, uh, brazenly, um, uh, as, as, as Corey indicated, the president of the United States was not tweeting about it. Instead, he was attacking our NATO allies for not paying enough money uh, for their own defense, further compounding the, 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 the realization that he doesn't actually understand how any of that works. Um, but it struck me, you know, that at that particular moment, the Russians were conducting military attack on the eastern side of NATO and the president of the United States was coming at it from the west, uh, which is kind of shocking.
0: Well, he does. I think he does that all the time. He does like the shiny objects. If something's happening with Russia, he's not going to condemn it. So he'll he'll attack somebody else and try to try to you know distract everyone with another shiny object. I'll just attack somebody else so maybe I can get the collective focus somewhere else. Um, the I think the only person who's really come out in the administration is Nikki Haley, and she'll be gone soon anyway. But I it's a little bit shocking, but. Uh, I was reading his tweet storm. I was like, oh, okay, Th- this makes sense. This is everything that's going on in the world. Let's attack somebody else completely. And it just—it's his mo. It's what he does.
1: Well, also, uh, you know, Corey Putin has been pretty good at 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 you know doing his salami slicing while people are looking in a slightly different direction. Um, and you know, Matt, you know, I to to some extent, he may think that the 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 world is preoccupied elsewhere. For example, you have pretty big brexit story unfolding in Europe right now um and it seems kind of you know reasonable to assume that a lot of people in Europe are going to be more caught up in that than they are you know um uh the the sea of azov right so um I you know that's you know that's strategic on his on 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 his part is that the, the correct assumption to make about the Europeans
2: I mean, Prime Minister May gets a parliamentary uh, vote on the Brexit deal on December 11th. And the drama here was over the making of the deal, whether the government would fall, whether a push against her. She's widely perceived to lose the parliamentary vote. And so everybody here is consumed with thinking about what happens when the government fails to get an approval of the Brexit vote, what that
1: what so, happens? To, what um, happens? You're there.
2: <laughs> it's not clear yet. It's not clear whether uh, the after they lose the first vote, they will pro- Prime Minister May will probably go back to Brussels and hope for some adjustments. It's not clear why, Europe, why EU folks would offer those because they feel like they've been giving Britain a good deal and waiting for Britain to stop demanding more. And so I think the only way she gets the compromises that might change the vote's outcome in Parliament is if she can, uh, you know, do the hard arithmetic of explaining to uh, Barnier and others in Brussels how she's going to get the votes uh, that turn this around, because... Because if Europe makes some compromises and it gets voted down a second time, uh, then they're right back where they started. Um, So she's either going to have to get compromises from Europe that make it possible or or offer what have been the three, you know, offer this deal remaining in the EU or bouncing out without an agreement to Parliament or... To the public, so yeah, it's going to be a consuming mess for some time now, still, and that may that may be what drove the timing, but it doesn't feel like quite enough. I I can't figure out what drove the timing on this. It feels um, it may have just been a target of opportunity.
1: Um, well uh that you know that's always always a possibility when governments are concerned if it's a choice between a big conspiracy or a coincidence it's often the coincidence mika i want to uh, you're sitting down right i don't want to overburden. I am. you yeah okay um but i'm going to ask you a really really hard policy question you're a policy professional um has trump done anything as stupid in foreign policy as brexit or is brexit really the stupidest thing that a country has done to itself in recent memory?
3: Ooh, that is a tough question because I actually feel like there are some things that Trump has done, uh, while not as dramatic as Brexit, may have similarly bad long-term consequences for the United States. I think you know the NAFTA pullout had the potential for that, the INF treaty withdrawal may have the potential for that. But I think that the big one um, that has that potential is the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement. And not just because of what it means for Iran, but because of the international reaction to it. You know, the Trump administration said, we're going to pull out of this agreement that where Iran agreed to um, freeze their and roll back their nuclear weapons program in exchange for some economic relief, um, which was agreed to globally. You know, Russia, China, our European allies, it was quite the coalition that came together to put these conditions on Iran. Um, and then when the Trump administration pulled out from this agreement, what you see in this conversation about whether or not we're going to impose secondary sanctions on our allies in Europe for continuing to try and work with Iran economically to hold this deal together is that you see the creation of an alternate economic system that would get around the U.S. financial system as a way of trying to avoid the secondary sanctions, which in the long run could really undermine the power of the U.S. financial system as a diplomatic and geopolitical tool if the rest of the world figures out they just don't need us leaving us even more isolated than it we feel right now.
1: I think that was an excellent answer, um, which explains completely why you're one of the leading thinkers in the foreign policy establishment here in Washington. But let's just see if there's some other answers possible, too. Um, you know, Emily, as stupid Trump policies go, how would you rank... Um, saying that after his administration comes out with a report that climate change could reduce the U.S. economy uh, GDP by 10 percent and produce the loss of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the president's response is, well, I just don't believe it. Does that rank up there? as you know in terms of long-term consequences do you think i mean you're sitting there in california surrounded by the smoldering embers of your state so i was wondering if that figured
0: i will just say i'm lucky to even be on this podcast i had a lot of raking to do this morning and so i finished that up so i could join um i fear that thank you thank you for
1: your service
0: you know what i keep continuing (laughs) to serve like i said (laughs) you know i'm a giver what I fear is that Trump may hear this and take this take your question as a challenge to do something even more stupid. Yeah. Um, the climate change—it's first of all, my father-in-law is a climate scientist, so what I love to do now is just send him quotes to see like how I rate he's going to be. It's—it's, <laughs> it's, which is probably not the best thing to do for in-law relationships, but I do it often. It's so. It's not what's so funny to me is everyone's like, Oh, Trump doesn't understand. He absolutely understands it, in my opinion. He gets it. He's just he just says it because he thinks he can convince somebody else about it and it doesn't suit him financially. It's utter stupidity. But no, I think he's gonna top himself. My money would be on that. I mean they- it ranks there, but I think there's so many other stupid, stupid, like profoundly stupid, palpably stupid stupid things he'll do within the next year.
1: You know, Corey, you know, Emily raised an interesting idea. I think we should do one whole deep state radio just directed to the president, you know, assuming that he's listening, you know, that we could just, you know, you could give him your direct advice.
2: You know, <laughs> I I think that would be pointless. Like I noticed people answering the president on Twitter, replying to the president's tweets and and I think it's pointless because he's on broadcast. He's not on receive.
1: Yep. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. But the reason I do it is because otherwise I'll have a nervous breakdown. You know, this is partially therapeutic. You know, it's not for him. It's for me. Um, I'm not the only one, but I'm just saying, you know, there is a reason, there is right. a reason to do it. You know, it's like, he's shouting at us. Don't you want to shout back sometimes? Uh, You know, it's 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 I mean, Corey, the president of the United States has ordered the United States military to use lethal force against hundreds of women and children on our border. He's launching tear gas. The first shot I saw of the tear gas landing among these people was a mother and two girls, one of whom was barefoot. And you're thinking, what is the it what is the threat posed? By this barefoot girl to the United States of America. Uh,
2: yes, I agree with that. I think there is no threat posed by this barefoot girl.
1: Do, do, <laughs> thanks, thanks for agreeing with that. Um,
2: David, on this on this incident,
3: this particular right, so called cabinet order that was issued as everyone was leaving town for Thanksgiving is a really, really dangerous precedent. And we haven't seen the language of the order yet, but the process by which this order was put out says really bad things about the future of rule of law in this country. Right? We've seen in press reports that even though he disagreed with this order, that uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly signed it out, but it was signed out against the advice of the White House Counsel Emmett Flood, who warned them that this could be unconstitutional and that the White House Counsel was the one dispensing the legal advice. You know, in the Bush administration, we saw when that was the case, it usually was political because they were avoiding getting the the strongest legal advice that they could from the affected agencies. In this case, the DOD General Counsel or the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. And I think that they were afraid of that answer. What that says is that they're not interested in staying in bounds of the law. One of the things that is the most fundamental principles in the United States, which is that we do not use our military to operate on American soil as a police force. It is one of the things that has distinguished us for centuries from other countries in how we stand against authoritarianism. And that Trump administration would just, with a wave of a pen and against the advice of counsel, put this order out there is actually terrifying to me.
1: Corey, this is your lane in some respects because you've spent a lot of time with uh, the, the relationship between the civilian and the military side of the government. What's your view of what Mika just said?
2: My view is that uh, the accepted uh, legal wisdom is that the White House Chief of Staff is not in the chain of command for military orders. And so it will have no bearing on anything that the White House Chief of Staff signed uh, a whatever this concoction was, that only the President of the United States has that authority, and it goes from the President to, to the Secretary of Defense, and thence into the American military. So this is a political stunt um, that has no legal basis. and. I, uh, I worry that it's one more way that the president is dominating the news cycle and getting us all lathered up and dispersing what should be concentrated outrage about uh, why don't we have a border policy that is both humane and secure? Because we as a country ought to be capable of doing both of those things simultaneously, and at the moment we aren't
1: not to mention a regional policy that might serve our border policy I and mean, we don't I even have see
2: the argument
1: we we, we don't, we don't exactly even have like an ambassador that. to el salvador right we don't we you know we in fact trump's decision was to cut back on the aid we were providing to these countries uh, that in part had the purpose of trying to create conditions which would lead people to stay at home rather than coming to our country so we on a foreign policy front on a border policy front On the domestic policy front, we seem to be losing on all of this. But I imagine, Emily, that in California, where the border crossing was actually shut down, where many people, thousands, tens of thousands of people use that border crossing every day. uh, This is not an abstract policy discussion, but this is really close to close to home is I
0: was just, the pictures are so unsettling and it doesn't, I know we're talking about stupid decisions and like on Trump's wheel of stupid. I don't even know if this goes on because it's just, it's just so incredibly sad. And to your point, Corey, I think that's all, it, especially here in California, it's obviously a, it's a pressing issue, but it's what we want is a humane issue. It's, this is such a soulless, just so sad and soulless response to a problem, and escalating a problem that doesn't need to be escalated to this extent. I'm, I, am i am just so disheartened over these images and what what's going on. I was going to ask Corey, what's what do what's the next response? How does this get stopped?
2: You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I think, I, uh. uh I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't think the administration is going to make sensible choices. No. Uh, What I noticed, though, is that in part, you know, when we had a similar crisis five or six years ago and you had unaccompanied children coming up through Central America to be admitted to the United States um, because our policy would admit unaccompanied children... And you think about what a family must be suffering to make that choice. Um, part part of the way we turned that the crisis around was through cooperation with the countries of Central America and, in particular, with Mexico. And we just don't have the kind of relationship with any of those countries now where they are going to help us solve this problem. So you don't have strategic depth to work with. You don't have space. You don't have cooperation. So it's all going to be pressed right up against the border. um, And that's where we work least well.
3: Yeah, one of the things that makes me really sad about this is remembering back to John Kelly's testimony when he was nominated to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. And he correctly identified that these are people who are fleeing from something. And one of the ways to solve this crisis was to actually try and stay. Stabilize the countries from which they were fleeing and improve rule of law in those countries and help those countries get a handle on their own violence. And what's very clear in this administration is that he has repeatedly lost that policy fight inside the administration, that they have gone with a strategy of let the rest of the world burn. And then when when they show up at our doorstep, be as inhospitable as possible. Um, not recognizing that there are reasons why people want to come to America. And frankly, they want to come to America for all the reasons that we love America, which is the opportunity here, the, the political freedom that we enjoy, our ability to make a good life and to live in peace with our families. And of course, we are selling that to the rest of the world. And we should not be surprised when people who live in much worse circumstances try and seek the life that we have.
1: You know, it's. I don't know. We only have about 10 minutes left here. And I, I, you know, I don't want to get too far off track. But one of the things that strikes me, uh, just as I'm thinking back on some of the things we've been talking about, is the degree to which one of the most damaging things the president of the United States has said in a variety of different kinds of settings is, I don't believe it. He started with the Russian hacking of the United States political system. And the intelligence community came and said, no, this is the Russians. And then everybody in the intelligence community said that it was a unanimous conclusion. And other countries said it was the Russians. And the president said, I don't believe it. Um, and when Khashoggi, um, was murdered, um, uh, and we do not know what the foreknowledge of that murder may have been within the Trump administration. So maybe even worse than I say, but then the intelligence community came and they said, uh, this is what has happened. And the president says, I don't believe it. And then the climate report is issued. Uh, saying that this is really a threat. I mean, there's no war on the horizon that can pose the threat of failing to address this climate threat. And the president's response, again, is these, you know, four words. I don't believe it. And, you know, Emily, it just strikes me that we've come to a very strange place where you can place any amount of facts in front of our idiot king, and he can just simply dismiss them Um, with a wave of his hand and he just says, I don't believe it. And he will go on and somehow believes that he, his own point of view, his own, uh, intelligence is greater than that of the sum total resources of the United States government, our allies and the scientific community, just to pick a couple and it just, do you think I, he
0: really believes that, though? Or do you think he just says that for his greater purpose?
1: I, I, I. I don't know. I think like his
0: I, lies are so brazen at this point when he says I don't believe it. For him to say I don't believe every single intelligence agency has come together unanimously when they agree on literally nothing. Having worked at the agency, literally we don't agree with anybody. We're like bad brothers and sisters who fight constantly. The fact that we all came together and said, This is truth, this is fact, we have proof and for him to say I don't believe it he literally I don't I don't understand well I was gonna say I understand how his brain could process it. I don't truly know if he has that. But do you believe that he really doesn't believe it?
3: I think he doesn't believe it. I actually think that he lives in a world of his own making and has his entire life. From the size of his wealth to his attractiveness to the opposite sex to well, his yeah, that's crazy to his influence right around the world. like you know all the stuff that he did back in the 80s, calling in fake stories to reporters. I mean he just thinks that he can create this fictional world and the rest of the world will go along with it. And so I think that when he says he doesn't believe it, it's true, but I think it says something really fundamental about the premise on which our government was found is founded which is that the government acts with rational basis. It has reasons. Those reasons are grounded in fact and an assessment of what's actually happening in the world. And when the commander-in-chief, when the president of the United States is making decisions that have no basis in fact, that have no basis in reality, what does it mean to the way that our government is structured and rational, rational basis deference, the Ways in which courts assess government um, decisions, the ways in which our allies react to us—the entire thing is premised on the idea that the president of the United States and the U.S. government act in rational ways.
1: Well, and I, I would—he doesn't I would, do that. Well, I would go He's a step so further. I would go a step further, Corey. That there is. You know, we we, we can talk about it. Well, the president's smarter. He's not smarter. He's lying or he's stupid or whatever. You know, you can have these kind of conversations. And that's, you know, what I think a lot of the Thanksgiving table conversations were. Um, And you can have a a more elevated conversation along the lines of what Mika is talking about. But, you know, if the president of the United States arrogates onto himself the ability to say this is true, this is not true, um, and to literally discount all the advice. Then that is a step towards, um, you know, um, uh, autocracy. It's a step towards, you know, rule by one individual, because the entire system of particularly the executive branch is designed to advise, provide good advice uh, and, and much of what the Congress does to the president. And if he's able to dismiss it out of hand and do so without any basis of counterargument besides simply saying this is my belief, where do we, where does that leave us?
2: I don't think President Trump is the first American president to have lied to the American public. I do recall Dwight Eisenhower denying the u two overflights um, i i I really worry that we talk about President Trump. He is in some ways unique, but he's also in some ways not that much of an outlier. And on the president's willful and repeated denial of the truth all over the place, I agree it's a pathology, but I also think there are a lot of very strong built-in countervailing forces, the vibrancy of the American press, the our conversations here, so the deep state radio nerds are properly informed of the facts.
1: Yeah, this is this is like a shortwave radio station reaching out, you know, across the country, <laughs> connecting to people and saying, "No, this is the real truth." Believe. You know, there's I-
2: a passage in Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth, Part One, where Glendower claims he can call spirits up from the vasty depth, and instead of being impressed, Hotspur's response is. Well, so can I or so can any man. The question is, will they come when you do call? So I think the question isn't does the president lie and deny the truth? Of course he does. The question is does that succeed in truth not being believed? And that's on us. That's on all of us. Well, let me challenge that. that. Let
1: me I first of all I, I love, you know, as the, the as the former well actually i'm not, with Emily here, I'm one of two former actors in the crowd um uh, I appreciate the, the the reference, but it's not a question of 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 it's not binary. His disbelief or his discounting it can have some effect within the White House, within his party uh in terms of policy initiatives, in terms of you know what he does or does not do um, and we've seen it you know he says he doesn't believe in climate and he promotes coal, you know, which is, you know, ludicrous, you know, policy, it doesn't even really create any jobs. Um, And we've seen it with regard to Russia that, you know, he can get a lot of it's not
2: the only person who advocates coal is all I'm saying. And that the that barrage of data and affirmation and like, we we're not without tools to counter this foolishness. And I just want to make sure that we don't talk ourselves into a position where everything relies on the president's behavior, because we have such a vast array of tools in our arsenal.
3: I mean, I I think, that yes, I think that we could choose to disbelieve the president. But, Corey, I also think that there's something really scary about the ways in which we have to do that and what that means for the presidency and sort of and democratic governance generally, like, I tend to believe that the president is operating in this alternate reality. And it, it's not like Eisenhower or Nixon, where they're lying, and they know what the truth is, and they're choosing to tell another story. I think he just believes things that are not true. And so from that perspective, I think he's different. But, you know, I do think that there's something really scary about what it means for our government, when the people inside the government and the bureaucracy have to look at what the president says, parse what he means and doesn't mean, and then make determinations other than that. Because what happens later on when we have a different president and people inside the government start saying, well, I can pick and choose what of the president says I can follow or not follow. And like I hope that Trump is just an aberration and we can go back to a world where a president is a rational actor. And when they are speaking to the government, there's a normal process. And we know their decisions are made based on a consideration of the facts. But I'm concerned that we are losing a sense of rational decision-making in government generally. And I think that that has some really scary consequences for how we go forward.
1: And by the way, I think those are both very thoughtful um, analyses. And I think Corey's wearing two tiaras at the moment, both the tiara of optimism and the tiara of thoughtful, cool rationality. Um, and they look good together, both of them, Corey. But um the, you know, as we as we as we look at this, you know, Emily, one of the things that strikes me is that we who are from the sort of policy community tend to want to analyze things in a thoughtful policy way. And And yet you bring up a good point. You know, it may not be that. There may also be, you know, just deep inherent flaws. The president of the United States may just be a big dope. And, you know, I I think about it because think about some of the responses just in the past, you know, uh, day or two uh, in the the, just the day we're recording this, which we record these on Mondays uh, at the the moment. And and um, so somebody asked the president about the confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. And the president's response was, hopefully it will get straightened out. And somebody asked the president about climate change. And he says, I don't believe it. And and then you know, somebody asked the president about General Motors laying off 15,000 jobs. And he says, well, I called them up and I told them that they should um stop building cars in china and they should build cars in the us and then when he was challenged on this by saying the cars didn't sell the president's response to that was well they should they should stop selling cars that don't sell and they should start selling cars that sell now you know at a certain point don't we just have to sort of have a human reaction and go what a maroon as bugs bunny would say I I, I, mean, I I have to counter Corey's Henry, the fourth part one with Bugs Bunny. And you're just like, what a, what a maroon.
0: I mean, you make a very good case that perhaps he's a really crap president when you lay it out like that. Um, yes, I believe um, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I Corey, I appreciated your optimism, how you explained it, because. The idea that maybe he he believes the falsehoods and his own notions is somehow I don't know more comforting than him choosing to lie and deceive in in that way maybe, but both <laughs> options
2: are equally <laughs> horrifying. I see you the point.
1: But by, by the way, Corey, I should add that among the things that he said was you know he you know uh, essentially pushing for Britain to get out of the eu at any cost and our uh, uh our regular partner here Ed Luce tweeted out trump is openly gunning for a no-deal brexit and for a populist like boris johnson or rismog to finish off theresa may this is full Bannonism, not the behavior of an ally it's actually the behavior of vladimir putin right i mean it is like <laughs> he is so far out there on these things
2: But again, let us recall that Barack Obama also intervened in Britain's internal conversation advocating uh, a remain vote. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not, all I am saying is that other American presidents have done these kinds of things. And I, I just want us to have a sense of perspective that we have tools for containing the damage.
1: We we do. Would you would you seed us the fact that Trump is maybe I don't know fifty percent dumber than prior presidents? <laughs> <laughs> do
2: I really have to take you back to Warren G. Harding, David? Yeah, no. view, are you going to require me to talk about Andrew Johnson's presidency? Yes. Yeah,
1: that's we, we love that. And I love it when people do that. They say, oh, well, Andrew Johnson was a bad president, you know, or uh, James Buchanan. He was a terrible president. Yeah. And then there was the okay, Civil War.
2: My very favorite deep state nerd thing was the securocrat tweeting out word that a tiara had been stolen somewhere and demanding to know my whereabouts at the time and whether I had an alibi. So thank you, deep state nerds, for indulging me time and time and time again.
1: Yeah, Corey has tiaras of her own in which will be in her permanent possession. She doesn't need to steal other people's tiaras. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, honestly, what kind of kleptocracy do you think we're running here?
3: Though so I, I got to say, if someone breaks into the Tower of London and some tiaras go go missing, I'm going to be knocking on Corey's door. I will have
2: an airtight alibi,
3: I
1: assure you. Yeah, believe me, the, the, the amount of letters we got here down in the mailroom in the fourth sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark, when Corey moved to within proximity of the Tower of London, there are a lot of people... Who are suspicious <laughs> that she's like doing one of those scenes, like Catherine Zeta-Jones with the lasers in that movie, with
2: you
1: know, where she's oh, like learning how to. That n- is
2: such a nice way to wrap <laughs> in ermine. <laughs> grubby work day me
1: thank you david that's well that's just I, I that's the image i have of you practicing ninja moves in some darkened <laughs> corner of double eye, double S. um okay we have one more minute here um and i'm going to turn this minute over to emily brandwin who is going to host um yet yeah, no and you and the, you're on the spot here um, and I'm going to tell Ian, don't edit this. Whatever she says, we have to use this. He's giving me a thumbs up. Um, oh, you're no. going to you're going to host, you know, Washington for beautiful people, and I'm going to give you 60 seconds to tell people why they should listen to it.
0: <laughs> There's so much pressure knowing I'm not going to be edited. I feel like I have to. I want to like do one of my monologues from theater school. Um, hey, Washington for beautiful people. But, what, were you going to were you going to say something?
1: No. I wasn't. I was. I was. I, I was actually thinking. Here's somebody who's been through the farm, trained by the CIA, and when maximum pressure comes on, she thinks I have to turn to my training in theater school. That's. I little...
0: I was like, can I do my Bat mitzvah haftorah? One of the two. Um, I, I, so I am beyond, beyond, beyond excited, and you made fun of me for using the word excited many times about hosting Washington for beautiful people because. Throughout the last couple of years, what I've been really heartened by with all of the sort of pessimism out there is that there's been so many great voices out there talking about the issues that really matter, giving it some awareness, really shining a light on it. And a lot of those voices are from my coast, the left coast. And so it's an opportunity for me to be able to talk to those those people, those voices, those thoughtful minds out in the entertainment world in La La Land, and also combining it with some of my friends. Back east in Washington and getting their thoughts and their perspective, but having it in a really, really tangible, fun conversation, talking about really what drove them to social activism, what drove them to really using their voice to elevating these issues and also hopefully moments where we can inspire a change. We can inspire people to actually go out and make a change on their own as well, because I don't want it to be, I don't think anybody wants it just to be doom and gloom. So hopefully it'll be some moments and beacons of optimism and, of course, some humor as well.
1: No, that's, look, this all begins, the the the, the, the sound of the first moment, of, you know, of Deep State Radio, the sort of the, the big bang moment of Deep State Radio is Corey's laugh. And everything emanates from Corey's laugh. It's like starts with the laugh. In fact, Ian, we should make that the opening of that show, you know. It starts with Corey's laugh, and then we go from there into everything. So there is always its optimistic subtext. But are there going to be people from Hollywood who people will have heard of, big names from Hollywood, as well as, you know, completely uh, anonymous nerds from Washington on the show?
0: There'll be... I'm happy to say they'll be both nerds and I consider myself one of those as well as some big names. Are, I don't know if I should. You
1: are. Yes. See, you are a nerd. You're getting the highest level of validation. Corey says you're a nerd.
0: Oh, I've, I've always been a, I look, I wore an eye patch when I was in school. Like I, my nerd status and I had that really, really young. Once you have an eye patch and really unfortunate hair, you're always a nerd. Always. Please. And I wore an eye patch twice, which makes me like a double nerd. Um, yeah, I have lazy eye, which, of course, my older brother loves because he's like, even your eye's lazy. Um, so, yes, I'm totally nerd. So we'll have some great names on. I've been... Reaching out to many, many people. I don't know if I should name the names until we do the interviews. Oh interview. no, so
1: I'm keep a them. No, no. Yeah, no, no, no. We will we'll announce them as they come. But I have to say, okay. we've been, we've given this a lot of thought, and the names are great names, and it's going to be Good. great, and it's going to be a compliment to the work that we do here at um, the 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 main Deep State podcast. But you'll be able to get them all in the same feed right Ian? out, all be in the same feed and um uh and uh, there will you know the other podcasts will be added in and I think by mm, sometime in January there will be a brand new fresh delicious nutritious deep state radio podcast every day of the week um and they will all offer the same brand of optimism and they will all um, uh, emanate from Corey's laugh, as everything that we do here does, and and should. I
2: curtsy my
1: thanks. Yeah, well, we we, we curtsy our thanks right back at you. Um, Because it always (laughs) lifts us up. So everybody listen to Washington for Beautiful People. Listen to the next episodes of Deep State Radio. Listen to our one on ones, to our rants. Go to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com. Go to the swag store. Great place to do Christmas shopping. Oh, my goodness. Nobody will want to come out of Christmas without their proper Deep State Radio um, swag. Uh, become a member, <laughs> help to support us, uh, so that when Emily goes out and meets with people to do this thing in Hollywood, she's able to do it in like a Bentley or something. Because there's some, you know, we have all those kind of resources. I get a Bentley. No, will it'll be a deep state radio Bentley? But you could use it, or we could do one of those rent-a scooters. Um, but in you know, the electric ones, you know, like in I Venice, feel
3: like a Bentley is so counter to the deep state. Like Yeah, you're it, right. That it should, in fact, be like a black minivan with, like, tinted windows. No, no,
2: no. See, that's the difference between Deep State in the silo and Deep State for beautiful people out in Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> she, that's a good... she needs to rock it in something really, really deserving of her. So not my beat-up
0: Prius.
1: No, well, actually, in in Hollywood, a Prius is really kind of a status it's symbol.
0: Pretty good. Um, it has some it has some wear and tear, but I feel like I feel like it may do.
1: Well, for now, it will do. But if enough memberships yes. <laughs> come in, the sky's the limit. It's up to you, Deep <laughs> State Nerds to determine what it is that Emily's driving around out there on Rodeo Drive. In any event, <laughs> tune in for. Have you ever been to Rodeo Drive, Emily? And, and, and in. <laughs> I know the answer to that question. In any event, um, join us. uh, Come back soon. Thank you, Mika. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, nerds everywhere. We'll be back with you again sometime soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.